Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. A traveler to New England cities and towns sees promise in their history and in their bones. There is something special that pre-exists in the bones of the downtowns, in the old mill buildings that can be retrofit into new things. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. We'll talk with a singer-songwriter who's visited a thousand towns. She imagines a new future for some very old places and the people who live there. We'll also meet a woman connecting people in Connecticut with those whose lives have been upended by Hurricane Maria. I don't know, I took it upon myself to, to bring a bag of groceries to, um, to a friend and then a friend and a family member, and then I realized that I could do more. And New England's Native Americans try to keep alive their traditions, including the traditional remedies you can find in the forest. When you take this and you braid it together, it's your mind, your body, and your spirit working together. It's a self-diagnostic tool. It's Next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. We want to start with a story of a business consultant and grandmother from Newton, Massachusetts, she had back surgery at one of Boston's teaching hospitals last spring and took a, an especially powerful opioid, as prescribed, and four weeks later she was in withdrawal. Her experience reveals the many ways that doctors, nurses, and hospitals are still fueling the opioid epidemic. And as WBUR's Common Health reporter Martha Biebinger explains, there's an emerging call to hold hospitals accountable. On April 17th, Patriot's Day, Katie Herzog checked into a well-known Boston teaching hospital for what turned out to be a nine-hour-long back surgery. I had sort of almost like bone spurs growing into my spine, and there was no room left in the spinal canal for spinal fluid at all. The 68-year-old consulting firm CEO left the hospital with a prescription for Dilaudid, an opioid used to treat severe pain, and instructions to take two every four hours as needed. Herzog took the full dose for about two weeks. Then, worried about addiction, Herzog began asking questions. I said, how do I taper off this? I don't want to stay on this drug forever. You know, what do I do? And uh, I never got any clear answer. <laughs> the visiting nurse would say, well, whatever your doctor says. The internist says, what does the surgeon say? You know, the surgeon doesn't do medicine. It was his resident or somebody else in his group who did it. When none of those people explained how to go off Dilaudid, Herzog went to Google, where she found a Canadian Medical Association guide to tapering opioids. Herzog began tracking her progress in a pocket diary. So I started tapering from 28, 24, 16. I can show you, you know, all the way that I went down. Herzog is counting milligrams, by the way, not pills. She flips ahead in her journal. So um, here we are. On May 14th, I had two milligrams. On May 16th, the day of a follow-up appointment, Herzog did not take any Dilaudid. By the time she got to the doctor's office, Herzog was sick. I was teary. I had diarrhea. I, I, I was vomiting a lot. I had muscle pain, headache. I had a low-grade fever. Herzog stumbled between the bathroom and the examination room. The surgeon said, 
I think you have a virus. You should go see your internist. And the PA was there, and she thought so, too. So Herzog went home and suffered through more than two weeks of what she came to realize was withdrawal. I had every single symptom in the book, and there was no recognition by these really professional, senior, seasoned doctors at Boston's finest hospitals that I was going through withdrawal. Herzog sees this as a system-wide problem, which is why she is not naming the doctors and hospitals involved. She did share medical records that support her story. She has since returned to those doctors who acknowledged to Herzog that she was in withdrawal. We have many clinicians prescribing opioids without any understanding of opioid withdrawal symptoms. Dr. Andrew Kolodny, Director of Physicians for Responsible Opioid Prescribing, says many physicians do not recognize withdrawal because they don't realize how quickly a patient can become dependent on pain meds. A patient who takes an opioid a few times a day for as little as one week is going to begin to develop physiological dependence on the drug, which means that they're likely to feel symptoms when they try and come off. Sometimes that dependence triggers full-blown addiction. The vast majority of street drug users say they switched to heroin after prescribed painkillers became too expensive. Now a handful of doctors and hospital administrators are asking if an opioid addiction starts with a prescription after surgery or some other hospital-based care, should the hospital be penalized? As in, is addiction a medical error? Kolodny likes the idea. It might help promote more cautious prescribing. It might help change practice. But Kolodny acknowledges penalizing hospitals for addiction is in direct conflict with a push to help patients manage pain. A small percentage of hospital payments are tied to patient satisfaction surveys that ask, did your hospital address your pain? Dr. Gabriel Bratt is a trauma surgeon and Harvard Medical School researcher who studies the use of opioids after surgery. This is a a real concern that patients who may feel that their pain is undermanaged may take that out, as it were, in these patient report cards. Which may lead doctors to prescribe more rather than fewer opioids. Many patients go home with more opioids than they need. A summary of recent studies found that one in four patients had pills left over at the end of their prescription. Here's another reason doctors may overprescribe. Patients are different. Bratt says about 10% need really strong pain meds. The rest, not so much. But doctors can't tell the difference. Many surgeons are still prescribing uh, opioids for the subset of patients that have higher requirements as opposed to for the majority of the patients who are taking a very small percentage of the pills that they're prescribed. There are no set guidelines for which opioids to prescribe after surgery at what dose and for how long. A study out last month says the optimal opioid prescription following general surgery is four to nine days. Senior author Dr. Lewis Wen, a surgeon at Brigham and Women's Hospital, urges his colleagues to use this range. The big hurdle is to have people not just automatically do something because they've done it for 20 years, but to really look at their prescribing habits closely and customize it for the patients and make changes. Reining in the amount of opioids prescribed is important, says Katie Herzog, but not enough. She says someone needs to help patients manage pain meds at home. And no patient should go through withdrawal alone because doctors, like hers, miss the signs. The fact that they did not recognize that, I find terribly upsetting. Upsetting and urgent. 
during this opioid epidemic that some leaders say is now a national emergency. That's Martha Biebinger of WBUR reporting. We're also following the story of Hurricane Maria and how it separated people in Puerto Rico from those loved ones they have here in New England. Jeff Cohen has the story of one woman's effort to bring food, water, and family connections to those in Puerto Rico and Connecticut. Veronica Montalvo was born in Willimantic and has lived in Hartford, Middletown, Waterbury, and now San Juan. She moved there earlier this year and she spent Hurricane Maria in her 300-year-old apartment building. She says the hours of howling winds were unbearable. The walls of her apartment were so wet they looked like they were crying. Part of her ceiling caved in. And now the aftermath. Power is limited, communication is limited, food is limited, and so is Montalvo's patience. She says she got pata caliente, or hot foot. It's that feeling that she's got to get out and do something. Uh, you know, one day I just decided um, to take a trip down south um, to check on a relative, um, relatives that I have that are also from Connecticut that no one had heard from. Her cell reception wasn't great when we spoke earlier this week, and getting a signal isn't easy. It's either on the roof of her building or on the side of the expressway. That's where she was when we spoke. I packed my car up with things and uh, as much water as I could buy and just, um, you know, just food, really in case my family needed it. And um, (laughs) the truth is, by the time I got to my family, I had already given everything away. That's because she had gotten lost. So she had to stop and ask directions from people who hadn't had much to eat or drink. And that was the beginning. I don't know. I took it upon myself to to bring a bag of groceries to... um, to a friend and then a friend and a family member and then I realized that I could do more. So she visited more grocery stores to buy food, water and toiletries. Then she'd get in her car and drive as far as she safely could to help whomever she could. But that's not all. Using her cell phone, she also recorded short clips of the people she'd met. Each time she gets back to San Juan and a cell signal, she posts what she can online. It's people identifying themselves, saying where they live, and letting folks know they're okay. On one of her drives, Montalvo deliberately went looking for Millie Rodriguez. She's the aunt of her best friend, Carla. (laughs) Millie happens to be an aunt aunt of one of my best friends in Waterbury. And, uh, you know, she had asked me to try to find her. And uh, I was really, I was really moved by by her and her son, her strength, her spirit. After the storm passed, Puerto Rico was under a nighttime curfew. That too tried Montalvo's patience and that of her neighbors in San Juan. You're just in solitude. There's there's not a lot going on. You have no communication. Um, you know, again, you get a little stir crazy. So um, in San Juan, that was one of the plazas nearest my apartment. They um, they scheduled like a ten day. Um, you know, a 10-day curfew celebration, I guess you could call it. And they had this band come out, it's you know, small, you know, and basically we all celebrated. My heart is warm, and I'm prouder and prouder to be Puerto Rican. I'm watching people help each other from the very beginning, uh, wring out towels, sweep out water, 
Um, everywhere you go, it's people, communities helping each other, neighborhoods helping each other. It's just a beautiful thing. It just, I think it resonates with, with our community, the strength and the fortitude and the, the spirit. That's Jeff Cohen of WNPR reporting. After the mass shooting in Las Vegas, people on both sides of the debate over firearms started to come together toward a possible ban of bump stocks. That's the device that the shooter used to increase the firing capacity of his rifle. Despite this small patch of middle ground, a big gulf remains between gun advocates and those who want stricter gun controls. NHPR's Casey McDermott talked to a gun store owner in Hookset, New Hampshire, who says he's got a little different outlook than others in the gun industry. You know, we try to take a a more middle-of-the-road approach. We love protecting our rights, and and we do love firearms, but the same token, we're not... We're not, uh, what sort of, we're not oblivious to, to what's happening, you know. So, so again, I have this conversation with my guys from time to time, too, that, you know, we need to self-regulate as a gun industry, as a gun culture, before somebody else who doesn't really have any skin in the game, doesn't care that they can't own a firearm or can't own a certain widget or whatever, starts making decisions for us. And that's, like I said, that's pretty much the heart of all the conversations I have here. That's Ben Boschman of the shop Wicked Weaponry. Casey asked him what policy changes he thinks might stop the violence like we saw in Las Vegas. Across the board for pretty much any of these incidents, I go back to the same thing. Um, you know, make, making sure that our background check system is working, working effectively, working in a timely manner. Another thing, too, is, you know, maybe we need to start working on training and requirements for people to purchase firearms. Nothing so astronomical that a good, responsible firearm owner wouldn't want to participate in. Um, you know, something that is actually useful, not just, a, you know, check the box kind of thing. Um, some of the other things that we were talking about, too, and this goes kind of both ways. I'm all for changing those software issues of, uh, you know, policy and training, but there's going to have to be probably a little bit of give on the other side, too. You know, if, if a, a gun person is going to submit themselves to training, licensing, and extra stuff than they do now, you know, maybe we need to talk about interstate acceptance of those training requirements so that, you know, maybe if you want to ca- carry concealed, it's not state by state and you're always playing this guessing game anymore. Maybe it's like a driver's license. You know, I'm all for taking a driver's ed style firearms course and then being able to drive in whatever state I go to. So so I think that on both sides, um, there's going to have to be some some compromise and some conversation. And I think that if people look at the bigger picture, the overall benefit is going to be positive. You know, even if someone says, well, I don't want a person from New Hampshire carrying in my state of Nevada. Yeah, but the safety factors will be increased just through training alone. So, yeah. And what do you say to someone who will say, well, why does someone need an AR-15? Why does someone need a military-style assault rifle? Like, how would you respond? Right. So a couple of things that we always need to make sure uh, whenever we talk about this stuff is we get our terminology right. We get our concepts right. Now, this this whole incident has actually really helped people understand the difference between semi-automatic and fully automatic, which in the past incidents, you've had um, news outlets come and say that they're using fully automatic weapons or automatic weapons, and it's a misnomer. Um, so this has done a lot better for that. Um, when it comes to firearms technology, 
again, I like to take a step back. If we took a soldier from the Civil War and showed him an M1 Garand from World War II, it would blow his mind. And he'd probably say, nobody ever needs to own a firearm like this. So, so again, we can't try to use technology uh, as a base because it's always going to be improving. We need to work at, at kind of everything that surrounds that technology because it's always going to be moving forward. Um, and do you have any thoughts on some of the other things that people will raise is that, well, you can restrict, you can put as much as many rules in place as you want, and the bad actors are still going to find ways to circumvent the system. Right, and that, and that's true, but I, I you know, again, that's that doesn't exist in a vacuum. Um, I, I saw something on the internet, and it was in a joking manner, but it said, you know, oh, you know, if if we took away all firearms, he would have still just you know, murdered people from the 32nd story of a building with something else. And that's that kind of strikes a certain uh, point where, all right, that's not an absolute truth that that bad people are going to do bad things no matter what. They may be do it to a lesser degree or to a harsher degree, depending on how we restrict. I don't think that you can't look at hardware at all, but I think that the bigger long-term solution is to look at training, safety, background checks. Um, just given the kind of opposition that we've seen at the national level, at least, to expanding background checks or focusing, are, are you at all optimistic that there would be, just given what we've seen in the last few years in particular, any more like openness to getting those kinds of measures passed? I think there has to be. You have to be open to, to looking at the background check system, looking at, again, training and those things like that, because those are what's going to, in my opinion, uh, yield better results. Um, and, and especially the more these things happen, you can't just keep burying your head in the sand and saying, well, nothing you can do. Guns are guns. People are people. I'm sorry. You're going to have to find some sort of solution, whether it be administrative uh, or even just taking care of your own gun community. If you're a fan of guns and understanding the gun community, even if you're not a fan of guns, um, that's the only way we're going to find a solution. That's for sure. That's Ben Boschman of Wicked Weaponry in Hooksett, New Hampshire, talking to Casey McDermott of New Hampshire Public Radio. For links to our recent story on gun culture in Vermont and to an excellent conversation about gun laws in New Hampshire on the show The Exchange, go to our website, nextnewengland.org. Coming up, a singer-songwriter who's visited a thousand towns shares what she's learned about how to build great communities. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. Have you ever revisited a town you hadn't seen in years and thought, boy, this place has changed? Maybe there's a new row of restaurants or a revitalized mill building, or maybe there's the hollowed-out shell of a Main Street. As a touring musician, singer-songwriter Dar Williams has a front seat to the changes happening in American towns, large and small. In her new book, What I Found in a Thousand Towns, she theorizes why some towns thrive and others can't seem to get out of their post-industrial slump. Williams is a singer with strong New England connections, having lived and worked in Boston and western Massachusetts, we caught up with her in our Hartford studios where she was in the area for a talk at Wesleyan University, her alma mater. Dar Williams, welcome to Next. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. First of all, big picture, 
What is it about being a touring musician that gives you an opportunity or an idea about how towns work, about what makes a good community? Give me a sense of what you learn from being someone who goes all over the place, playing songs and and meeting people. Well, it's a couple of things. I go and I also go back. So I get to see the time lapse. And that is a wonderful thing. And so many times I've gone to a place where people are hand lettering the tickets <laughs> or I'm helping them unfold the chairs to actually because they're just beginning to, to actually, you know, make this venue happen or, or people have retrofitted a space in a really interesting way. I'll watch that happen. And then the next year I come back and they have like a local art show of the high school students and maybe a cafe has opened and this cafe is kind of awful, but it's <laughs> got, you know, decent. And then the next year I go back and there's, you know, they've cleared off the waterfront. I get to see a conversation start somewhere and then it grows and then it grows. And then suddenly everybody's saying, oh, no, now we have to deal with gentrification because everybody wants to live here, which, of course, is a big issue. So that time lapse of going from the post-industrial malls, big boxes, downturns, quick downturns of the closing of the mills that happened in the 90s where I was starting has turned into this next chapter in a lot of places. It's like a love story. It's a beautiful thing to watch. Yeah. And there's so many uh, towns like the ones that you describe in your book that are scattered across New England. It feels as though mm-hmm. this region, because of all the old mill communities, the mid-sized cities, some of which haven't really been able to get out of their own way, some of which have, have cropped over, over time. It seems as though this is almost like an epicenter for the sort of town that you're talking about. Do you feel that there's something specific about these New England communities that have this rich sense of history, but are also trying to bring themselves into some sort of present and grapple with these these, uh, problems and ideas? There is something special that pre-exists, you know, in, in in the bones of the downtowns, in the old milled buildings that can be retrofit into new things. And even in the ethos of New England about sort of understanding that you're going to have to dig somebody out of the snow and somebody's going to dig you out of the snow. So there's a lot to work with and hopefully a lot of excitement. A lot of people say, well, we're not New England. (laughs) 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 Like even New England has to deal with its, its specialness. So hopefully I can I've had some examples of things that you can do to kind of put some life into those old buildings. And, you know, please don't tear them down. Dover, New Hampshire is one town that I talk about. Mm. Um, They put all sorts of stuff into their old mill buildings and um, have all these cool kind of, you know, wheels and pulleys that they've kept up in the buildings. So you have this tech startup across the way. They show the spindles and the compasses and the stuff that they used. And there's a, there's a tension, though, in a lot of these communities, too. You, you hinted at it earlier. Gentrification is a word yeah. that, that comes up a lot. I, I think of a city that, that we cover quite a bit in our program, Portland, Maine, which you, mm. you talk about in the book, mm. a, a place that has always, frankly, been fascinating and filled with interesting people and good restaurants and, and a tourist destination of a sort. But now it's become uh, a tech hub, and it's a place where young people are moving, and it's honestly pretty expensive for a lot of people who used to live there. So how do you view that tension in places? Ideally a healthy tension, but one to pay attention to because, you know, we're a fast-moving capitalist society. So, you know, that new money that's coming in can feel like a bunch of very unregulated locusts. <laughs> so that's the truth. However, you know, in order to keep the pulse of the downtown going – you are going to have to have the store that sells the weird in- inflatable plastic chair that looks like a big bubble. And, you know, and, <laughs> and all e- e- those things will help finance 
the ability to sell a hammer and a flashlight. And everybody will have a different solution to affordability. Like somebody told me, and I haven't checked on this, but that Portland had a a, a, a thing put in place to, to keep the waterfront, a working waterfront, as well as a tourist. So you have your saltwater taffy, but you also have jobs at the waterfront and, and trying to keep the integrity of that. There are a lot of services and parks that people use that keep it affordable for all in terms of a, a lifestyle. The housing thing, everybody's wrestling with the, the housing question. But if you have affordable housing, affordable drugstore, and an affordable grocery store, if you have those three things in place, and perhaps an ethos that keeps all those three things in place, then there's other stuff that you're going to get for free because there's so much of that fabric that's so desirable of people who engage with keeping those public parks so nice and interesting and keeping that history alive. And then you get free public schools that are awesome because people are invested in those too. You write about a visitor to resident ratio and and that being an important part. Talk talk about that idea. There's this thing that I call the VR ratio, which is the visitor viable, resident relevant. Visitor viable um, means that, you know, you have the, the beeswax candles and ideally stuff that's made by your residents because A, visitors want that and B, uh, that, that feeds your economy as well. But, you know, how are you going to keep those ordinary things in stock and in play so that you have the very best of what a pedestrian town can offer to people who don't have cars, people who don't like to drive? So we're talking about older residents, young people, not just skateboarding around nowhere. If you get that mix, then then it's everything that you might have hoped for in a 21st century town. Mm. What do you mean by positive proximity, which is the the idea you kind of launched the book with? I got to say, you're a singer-songwriter. You're not like an urban planner, but you've come up with a lot of ideas that I've not really heard from urban planners necessarily. And this is an interesting one. Tell me about positive proximity. They have words for it like high trust community. That's a word. Uh, There's something called bridging social capital. But for me, I came up with that term because a friend of mine said, Dar, guess how relationships are formed in communities? And I said, uh, values. And he said, no. He said, it's just proximity. It's just who's around. Because towns that are figuring out how to not just be sustainable, but actually you know, stable, but actually thrive and have really interesting tomato festivals, have a sense, an ethos in the air where people say, oh, there are a lot of people really close by. That means different skill sets. That's a constructive force. That's a positive force. That's a collaborative opportunity. Um, And that's called positive proximity. So towns that have a critical mass of positive proximity know that they have a beautiful mill building that they can retrofit into startup companies and apartments. Towns that don't will have a developer going in and saying, hey, I don't want to deal with this. Let's just knock this all down. And no one's going to want to move. <laughs> People are going to want to move to the retrofitted mill town where you have that positive proximity of, ooh, we love our history. How do we live in these history-filled streets? And, and that history, of course, in New England towns is is so important. But but do we do we become prisoners of that? I, I, no. Are, you, you, <laughs> you, you don't worry sometimes that because we keep the white steeple church and the green the way it was 200 years ago and the mill building that maybe has been vacant for 100 years, that maybe there's there's something that doesn't allow us to let go of a past in order to welcome in something new. Well, what I sort of saw as the, as the um, ideal of a community is what I call hometown pride and worldly welcome. So then you get the best of both worlds. You're like, 
I love that beautiful steeple and I see it when I drive home and it's home to me to see it. But you also say, oh, my goodness, we have these drumming companies that are that have been coming through and having these incredible interactive performances. We want that in that church, you know, so let's get a really great sound system for the church. Let's paint the, the steeple purple. If you have positive proximity, what you do is you take the thing that's there and then you discuss how you're going to keep it launched into the forward-facing, outward-facing, or identity-affirming you know, part of who you are. I do want to talk about the one uh, New England town that you go into depth on, uh, Middletown, Connecticut, a place where mm-hmm. you went to college. But, but I want to take, take us through some of these other ideas. When you talk about spaces and the importance of spaces in places, you're not just talking about open public spaces. What do you mean by a space that helps to connect a community? Well, I get kind of specific, but um, a great cafe will do a lot. And there is a cafe like this in um, Beacon, New York, that kind of had all these different parts. It had things that I recommend, like specifically a toy corner. Um, Also, a second room for that cafe. If you have the auxiliary space where the depressed teenager can hang out and not feel like someone's going to run her out, she, she might become, you know, herself there or have a poetry reading or people can have a meeting back there. Bars are great. Don't be a prude. Believe in your bar. <laughs> uh, waterfronts. I have a whole chapter on waterfronts just because that specifically is such an opportunity. How can we find our way to the waterfront accessibly, not just a tiny footbridge or a clammy tunnel? Parks that are used as opposed to kind of parks that are just kind of rarefied and off to the side. Those are all the spaces that get people not just talking, but talking about their community. When I was reading uh, the, the part of your book about the cafes in that secondary space, I was thinking about a, a little cafe where I, I had a business meeting in Brattleboro, Vermont. Mm. And it was a beautiful place, and it overlooks the river there. And I noticed that people were just coming in and doing work, and they were having their own meetings, and it was one of these vibrant spaces. But I also thought that it's so dependent on the people who run that cafe mm. being able to make it. Right. It's it's mm-hmm. it's great to have that space and it might be the perfect cafe for a time period. But we all know what happens in a lot of towns where the restaurant or the bar or the cafe that you love closes because the people there just can't make it. And mm. I, I wonder how we how we do that. And we make sure that people are able to to succeed doing something that might not make a whole lot of profit, but might benefit the community. Well, there's all sorts of creative directions for that. So one is maybe having a second room so that there's more circulation <laughs> in the first room to buy stuff. Um, and there's all the sort of the, the merchandise and, and things that you can still do while still having a big bulletin board and doing local art and, and things like that. Um, but the other thing is, you know, for us to have some conversation about, I mean, ideally sort of a policy conversation about how important it is to have that kind of space. So how do we... You know, in in Beacon, somebody said, maybe we should start talking about building ownership of business owners so that these buildings can stay as they are and not be chasing after the the rising rents that come from all that, you know, success. Maybe there's something where we have the bookstore that's combined with the cafe so that each can value add the other, you know, 
creativity is going to definitely be a part and compassion for the owner so that you're not just holding on to tables <laughs> other people could be using <laughs> yeah, you, you, is another you, key thing. Yeah, you have to be a good tenant of the, that cafe space, not sitting there with your $2 cup of coffee for five hours. Exactly. When, when people are waiting for this. That's a part of it too. When, when, you, when you write about building identity, we've already talked quite a bit about history, but but you, you use an example of Lowell, Massachusetts, one of these communities with this <clears throat> rich industrial history and the remnant, the residue, and the, the promise of it is all these great old mill buildings and all this great space to do. What, what do you see in Lowell uh, that, that teaches us something about how to forge an identity through history? Well, you know, Lowell is, is, is still struggling in a lot of ways, but Lowell has these incredible layers of history as a mill town, a mill town that had a strike, um, the, the home of Jack Kerouac. Uh, it's got beautiful architecture. It's the home of Whistler, the painter, and all these things that you can kind of dig into. They have all these museums in place, so they get different kinds of state and federal funding. Some of that's dried up, and the town is suffering for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, out of that engine came sort of participatory art spaces, participatory little galleries, but that were affordable where they sold to local art. And the cafes and the small spaces and the great restaurants that go with it, too. So it seemed like history was this place to dig in and start. And then out of that came, you know, the the beautiful concert series on the lawn of one of those buildings. I saw them digging into history and then building the future out of that history and doing a really beautiful job. They haven't gotten all the way yet. And I think that federal funding drying up has affected them. You talk about an idea that I, I think many people uh, have long understood about uh, cities like Hartford, Connecticut, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. It's something called capitalitis. <laughs> capitalitis is this like this beautiful thing kind of gone awry, which is that capital buildings were supposed to be like the palaces of democracy. So they're beautiful and they're big and they're grand and they're somewhat unapproachable and they seem somewhat unsafe. So there are tons of locked doors. So you have that in Hartford, mm-hmm. gorgeous building. And, and then it's got the park outside. If you just have a capital property and you've got the capital building itself, and then you have the, the, um, oh, the courts and the municipal buildings around it, no restaurant wants to go near that because you're nine to five. The people don't know to get inside it themselves. The parks are unused after a certain after. And so you'll literally have people walking into work stepping over syringes so that they can do the work for the, the people. And it's it's dispiriting for them. It's dispiriting for the public. And it's a huge drain on the life of the city. My joke is that we should get a disco ball into every Capitol building <laughs> in every state and really open up the space. In, you know, it can't just be where you bring in middle schoolers and talk about state government. I mean, could we reimagine the public space and put a cafe for the people in the courthouse? I mean, can we put some private uses or some some kind of use for the public specifically into these buildings to keep them more 24-hour, keep them more engaged with the life of, of the town? There are so many New England communities that are the way that they are, uh, for better or for worse, mostly better because of the presence of a, of a university. Uh, mm. You write about one of them, uh, Middletown, Connecticut, just a few miles down the road from Hartford, where you went to school at Wesleyan University. And that is a place clearly that has changed quite a bit over the years. And you've, as you said earlier, seen that change as someone who's been coming back there time and time again as a performer, as a, as a student, 
as as an alumnus. So so tell me about the story of Middletown and what you see there in terms of the way it's grown as a community. When we first came in the 80s, it had this beautiful grand Main Street. So, of course, what makes Main Street stores? So the malls had arrived and taken all this life out. The, the buildings, the factories had gone down, literally been raised. Rob Rosenthal, who's this great sociology professor there, he said that there used to be 5,000 people out on the streets of Middletown. And we would go, and it was not like that. And there was, it was an older population with mobility issues. And so just watching all of these kind of people kind of finding their way around this shuttered up Main Street we thought it was kind of funky and interesting, but very different from us. And we lost out on that because Wesleyan is filled with eccentric, wonderful, imaginative students. We also were imaginative and creative about wondering what our lives could look like after college. And Middletown was a beautiful, affordable, interesting place with people doing real pilot stuff um, that we could have learned about as fe- feeling like co-citizens. Instead, we saw it as either a place where you went to this really strange um, drugstore called Pelton's to, you know, and you'd get a prosthetic, you'd rent a prosthetic leg for your performance art piece or something, or... (laughs) That's my best visual of the entire book. I thought (laughs) that sounds about right for the Wesleyan student, yes. (laughs) You know, and if you, and you'd write one around the prosthetic leg, you know, (laughs) or, um, or you went to do your charities. And and we, we didn't call it charities. We call it service. They call it service learning now, but it's different because there's an understanding that it's interactive. You're getting something from serving the the community, you know, by doing the data entry and the, the, the data gathering and stuff. Um, but we sort of said, oh, yes, when you get involved with your college town, you're working at the food pantry. But still that idea that we were being charitable towards a community was also a little wrongheaded. And it didn't help either of us, I think, at the end. Now, there's this bookstore that's in the middle of town, and that's the campus bookstore. So that Main Street campus relationship can really start to find its feet even more than is than is already happening. How much of the work in the towns that you visited and that you write about, how much of the work that needs to be done has to be done around the issue of race and how different members of the community, depending on how they grew up, where they grew up, what neighborhood, how they view the place very, very differently. Because I think a lot of the towns that you write about, some of these towns I know very well, um, I'd get a much different reaction about the Cozy Cafe if I talked to some people in town versus if I talked to others. Yeah. Well, at every every Q&A, there's someone who stands up and, and looks at me. You know, it's usually like a college-educated woman in her 30s, and she goes, I just wonder if you're thinking about diversity. And I was like, I thought about it on every page and every paragraph, you know, because I'm thinking of concepts. The thing is, the manifestation of the concepts are words like Chardonnay, basil, cafe, museum, and that has a buzz to it, and, uh, and I get that. And, that. and there is something to look out for there. But underlying that um, is this idea of social capital, the bank account of trust and belonging and connection in a community. Coming out of this book, my motto was think in bridges. So if you have something that's working for you, you know, let's say you start a swimming lesson, you know, somebody gets a beautiful uh, cordon put around a part of your river and there's free swimming. But then you discover there are a lot of people who can't swim 
And a lot of times that's an economic divide. And a lot of times the economic divide historically has also been a racial divide. Mm -hmm. So you say, you know what? I'm thinking in bridges. Is there a senior center where there's a retired coach of any kind who can give you input and maybe be involved? Can you talk to the why about it? Can you talk to the school? How do you make sure you invite a lot of people in and model the fact that this is for everybody? And also see this as a an advantage because when you go into the city council to get those permits and to get it all in place, you're going to have someone from the senior center, the YMCA, the school at your side, and you're going to have those relationships and those potlucks and those donut breakfasts and those things uh, in place. Think in bridges and see how you hold on to the thing that's, you know, your identity and your past, but how well it can bridge to somebody else with their whole identity and past without compromising or watering down the richness of where you came from. Beth Macy said something so great. She wrote Factory Man, and she said, a community thrives when there is a diverse range of equal voices. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great thing to strive for. Mm -hmm. The book is called What I Found in a Thousand Towns, A Traveling Musician's Guide to Rebuilding America's Communities. One coffee shop, dog run, and open mic night at a time. Dar Williams, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks, John. New England fans have several chances to see Dar in concert this fall. Coming up, she'll be playing in Northampton October 25th and in Boston on the 26th. You can find her full schedule at darwilliams.com. Also touring New England this fall? Well, a beetle from the south that could prove deadly to thousands of pine trees. That's coming up after this break. Next. Lord, there goes Johnny Appleseed. He might pass by in the hour of need. There's a lot of souls. Hey, drinking from the well, locked in a factory. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Pine forests in New England could soon be at the mercy of an incredibly destructive insect. As WNPR's Patrick Scahill reports, the southern pine beetle is making its way north, and a new study says climate change could speed up its migration. Shotgun pellet holes and popcorn, those are two things you wouldn't think to mix. But when it comes to the southern pine beetle, they are telltale signs of an infestation. Here's a dead tree. Um, we're almost dead anyway. Yeah. Um, what was that line from The Princess Bride? <laughs> <laughs> That's Thomas Worthley. He teaches forestry at Yukon. And it turns out this tree is only mostly dead. As we stand in a Connecticut forest, he points out two telltale signs of pine beetle infestation shotgun pellet holes, and popcorn. I don't know if you can see the shotgun effect of uh, holes here on the bark. That's the kind of thing that a uh, southern pine beetle would do. They'd bore it, there'd be a bunch of them, they'd all bore in little holes. You'd get these kind of popcorn-shaped exudation of um, pitch. And the, the bad pun here is that the tree is trying to pitch out the beetle. In big groups, these insects can swarm trees, causing massive damage. The U.S. Department of Agriculture says the southern pine beetle is the most destructive insect pest in the southeastern United States. 
And now, a new study out of Columbia University says climate change could expedite its journey north. We'll be dealing with mortality in our trees from uh, something we've never, never experienced before. Corey Lesk is one of the study's authors. In the paper, he models how carbon emissions drive up winter temperatures. And he pairs that data with beetle biology, looking at how cold a winter needs to be before it kills a beetle. What he found out is that warmer winters mean more beetle survivors. Writing in the journal Nature Climate Change, he says that means New England's door could be wide open to the southern pine beetle. I think it's fairly plausible to imagine pretty widespread mortality in, in the 2020s. Claire Rutledge, an entomologist who works for the state of Connecticut, says southern pine beetles are already here. Right now, she says numbers are small, only a handful popped up in traps this year, but the beetles were found in the New Jersey pine barrens only a few years ago. And Rutledge says they're now also on Long Island. They're very tiny little beetles, as I said, so it's, it's you know, relatively easy for them to become aerial plankton, to be lifted up by the wind and swept over and dropped. In 2015, she says it looks like some beetles did just that, soaring over Long Island Sound and plopping down in several Connecticut towns. This year, she says only a handful popped up, which means the jury is still out on whether the southern pine beetle is established enough to do mass attacks on healthy trees. But Rutledge agrees the beetles are coming, and they could wipe out an iconic Connecticut tree. I think for Connecticut, our major concern really is um, is the pitch pines. Columbia's Corey Lesk says even more types of trees could be threatened by the mid to late 21st century as the pine beetle moves over New England and southeastern Canada. Yukon's Thomas Worthley agrees. More north and west, they'll find more native red pine as part of the mix in the forest. Uh, New Hampshire has a a larger uh, red pine component than we do. But then up there, you also find a a species called jack pine. That's a a northern species uh, that grows in pretty pretty dense, almost pure stands that could be seriously affected. The USDA says the last major multi-state beetle outbreak in the early 2000s resulted in more than $1 billion in economic losses to a region in the southern Appalachian Mountains. That's Patrick Scahill reporting. As we worry about the disappearance of tree species across New England, Native American leaders here don't want their cultural knowledge about medicinal plants to disappear. In Vermont, they've decided one way to preserve it is to share the expertise with those outside Native communities, leading plant walks for the public. On a recent sunny morning, Vermont Public Radio's Kathleen Masterson went along on a walk. Right here, this is a piece of sweetgrass. It's actually pretty long and it's gone quite nice. Tom Beck is a spiritual leader of the Nolhegan Band of the Kusik Abenaki Nation. He's picked up a wide blade of green grass about two feet long, holding it delicately between his weathered fingers. And this right here, when you take this and you braid it together, it's your mind, your body, and your spirit working together. It's a self-diagnostic tool. The group of about 10 gathers round to take a closer look. Beck says the sweetgrass braids are then burned in a ceremony, and how evenly the three strands burn is an indicator. If it burns straight across, you know your mind, your body, and your spirits working together equally. If one strand burns slower than the rest, he says, it can be a reminder to attend to that area of your life. Native communities often come together to harvest sweetgrass and then hold the ceremony afterward. It's not something that typically non-Native people would attend. But in 2015, tribal nations who attended the Wabanaki Confederacy meeting in Vermont decided that sharing these traditions with all people could be an important step to preserving them. 
the chiefs talked about it and what can we do to record our uh, culture? How can we save this for people? And that's what, why that, that's why this is going on, because we want to preserve our culture. Beck says the plant knowledge he's sharing today is a mix of things he learned from various indigenous elders, all passed on orally with walks in the woods. Today's walk is meant to be the first of many, an introduction to plants that have been used in traditional medicine. And I'll walk a little bit down here, and then I'm going to disappear. Beck leaves the group with trained herbalist Stephanie Cohen, who studied medicinal plants. I really like to focus on practical plants, like things that you're going to find often, things that are readily available, things that you can use every day. To that end, she leads the group a bit further down the trail until she spots the first specimen. (laughs) Okay, so this... This is called Usnia. She's plucked an airy sage green lichen that's sometimes called old man's beard. Little bursts of it are all over the branches of a fallen tree. Usnia can be dried and used as a tea. It is very, very powerful antibiotic for the lungs. Cohen points out that pharmaceutical companies have long looked at plants and traditional remedies to develop treatments. Take aspirin, for one, which was developed using a compound extracted from willow bark. For centuries, many cultures used willow extract for its healing effects on fever, pain, and inflammation. Oftentimes, pharmaceuticals are, they find plants that do a thing. They try to find the one, the primary ingredient that does the thing and then isolate it all by itself. But what's amazing is the effect is rarely as profound or as long-lasting. Cohen makes clear she believes that pharmaceutical medicine is important and has its place in treatment. But she wants to point out the power of what she calls whole plant medicine. That affects us in profound ways that cannot be entirely mapped out and understood. And it's that rich tradition that leaders like Tom Beck and others don't want to be lost for future generations. That's VPR's Kathleen Masterson reporting. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrew Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Production help this week from Kion Wolf. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The Dar Williams track you heard earlier was Johnny Appleseed from her record, Emerald. To keep up with the latest episodes, plus news from around the region throughout the week, follow us on Twitter at NextNewEngland. And tweet at us with your ideas and feedback. We'd love to hear from you. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Melville Charitable Trust and powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR. WNPR.